1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Humans have always sought meaning beyond themselves in stories about the gods and the beyond. Yet today, contemporary culture and thought has left many of us alone with only human and contradictory perspectives on the universe. So do we need the transcendental to give our lives meaning? Or should we ring out a Nietzschean cheer at the death of God and focus our attention on creating our own human meanings that have lasting value. Joining us to discuss the pursuit of meaning are distinguished scientist and author, Rupert Sheldrake, philosopher and Wittgenstein scholar, Maria Balaska, and professor of metaphysics, James Tartaglia. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world-leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Danielle Sands.
0: Humans have always sought meaning beyond themselves in stories about the gods and the beyond. Yet today, contemporary culture and thought has left many alone with only human and contradictory perspectives on the universe. In the absence of something beyond ourselves, some would argue we have also lost meaning and purpose. Do we need the transcendental to give our lives meaning? Can we conjure a 21st century form of the transcendental in the philosophical mysteries of life and the universe? Or should we wring out a Nietzschean chair at the death of God and focus our attention on creating our own human meanings that have lasting value and importance? Welcome to this morning's event, um, and let me introduce our speakers. Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist, author, and parapsychology researcher. Best known for his hypothesis of morphic resonance. Rupert has sole authored nine books, his most recent being Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Maria Belaska is a philosopher at the University of Hertfordshire and author of the book Wittgenstein and Lacan at the Limit Meaning and Astonishment. And last but not least, James Tartaglia is a British philosopher and author of the book Philosophy in a Meaningless Life. His main interest is in understanding and enhancing awareness of the nature of philosophical inquiry. So we will start with opening pitches from our three speakers in response to the question, do we need the transcendental to give our lives meaning?
1: Rupert.
2: Well, a lot of people don't have a sense of the transcendental. Most people in Britain describe themselves as non-religious, and uh, many have been brought up with a secular and materialist worldview which tells us that the universe is made of unconscious matter, evolution is purposeless, the mind is nothing but the brain, or the activity of the brain, and it all goes blank when you die. Now, lots of people find that reasonably okay and lead satisfactory lives. However, I think one of the consequences of this is a proneness to depression, and I think most modern secular societies are blighted by sort of huge levels of depression and people on antidepressants. If you look at the Middle Ages, when there was a shared view and a shared belief in transcendence, they produced, with a tiny population here in Britain, the great cathedrals like Canterbury and Lincoln and Wells and so on. Uh, There was a shared meaning uh, and a shared creation of great buildings. Well, of course, we have great buildings too, mainly banks. I think the first point is some people it's perfectly fine the way it is. However, if one looks at the actual things that change people's lives, looking at the natural history of life-changing events, a study started over 50 years ago by Sir Alistair Hardy at Oxford, it turns out that what people find really meaningful are things like near-death experiences, spontaneous mystical experiences, um, spiritual practices, and today increasingly psychedelic experiences, also there are many spiritual practices which can make it easier for these spiritual experiences to happen, these experiences of connectedness. I've written about them in my recent books, things like meditation, prayer, rituals, connecting with nature, um, and indeed sport, which is one of the ways in which people in the modern world achieve altered states of consciousness. Meditation is all about coming into the present, because you can only have that experience of presence, of the uh, greater consciousness in the present. Um, And it works reasonably well. I meditate myself. But sports uh, bring people into the present instantly. As a friend of mine said, he tried meditating when he was very, very busy and his mind was racing. Didn't work for him. He's a rock climber, though, and he said by the time he was 50 feet up a rock face, he was totally in the present. Someone skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour is totally in the present. Someone in the middle of a football match is totally in the present. So I think actually um, there are many hidden forms of connection with the spiritual realm and the sense of a greater presence in the modern world, despite the secular facade. So I think we do need this if we want to have a deeper sense of meaning. And I think even in a secular world where uh, religion has much less role to play for most people, The need for these experiences generates a quest for them, and people find them in all sorts of different ways.
0: Thanks, Rupert. Over to you, Maria. Do we need the transcendental to give our lives meaning?
3: I think I need to draw a distinction between the transcendent and the transcendental to answer the question. So, in ordinary language, we use the word transcendent and the word transcendental as synonymous, but in philosophy, they're not. So the transcendent refers to a reality that transcends our own reality, that extends beyond our own reality. The usual candidate for that would be God. But the transcendental doesn't need to refer to something otherworldly like God, to something that transcends the reality, but it can just refer to our own concepts and categories insofar as they are um, important for uh, sense-making itself. Let me give an example to explain. So we have concepts that describe things that we find in the world, like, for example, the concept of a lemon or a glass or a table. But then we've got concepts that do not describe things in the world, yet they describe things that are necessary for us to make sense of the world, like the concept of good or beautiful or concepts in mathematics or in logic or the concept of a world itself, or life, if by that we mean life as a whole. We don't find this um, whole anywhere in uh, the world. So if that's what we mean by the transcendental, then I think that the question of the meaning of life cannot but be situated within the transcendental. If by transcendental we mean the transcendent, I think it can, but it doesn't have to. Thanks, Maria. And finally, James?
4: Well. I don't think we need to give our lives meaning at all because they're already packed full of the stuff. There's football meaning, office work meaning, festival meaning, restaurant meaning. Humans create meaning by taking on projects. We want to do something, we make that our goal, that becomes our purpose. As we pursue that goal, things take on a meaning in relation to it. You know, that helps me, that's an opportunity, that's an obstacle, that's a disaster. And we change this as, as we go through our lives, right? We're always adjusting our goals. Sometimes we've got lots on at the same time. So the idea of picking out one meaning as you know, the meaning of a person's life strikes me as hopeless. Here's an example, right? So if we were to think about um, some great artist who lived hundreds of years ago, we'd naturally say, well, the meaning of his life was preser- provided by the art, the great art he produced. And thereby we maybe miss out this guy's happy family life. You know, think how much meaning that can involve. Or uh, maybe his last 10 years, which he spent in poverty. So as far as individual lives are concerned, I think that idea of meaning is just entirely interest relative. And that's why people talk across purposes in these debates. If you're talking about the human race, I don't think there's any master plan that we're trying to fulfill. Uh, I don't think that there's anything that humanity is supposed to be doing. Um, I don't you know, see any problem with that whatsoever. Uh, of course, many people in the world do think that there is some master plan that we're all following. most people in the world are religious. But I would say this. If there is such a grand evaluative context for our lives, a meaning of life, then it could be either good or bad, right? It could be horrible. You know, nobody's ever been able to give any remotely plausible idea of what this meaning would be. So there's no reason to think it would be good rather than bad. If nihilism is true, on the other hand, okay, it can't be either good or bad, it's just a fact about our reality, because it denies this notion of meaning as an evaluation. Now, the notion of nihilism was first introduced in the 1790s alongside the notion of the meaning of life. They came together, the good and the bad guy. And nihilism's got very bad press ever since then. But it seems to me that if you don't really believe in judging a person's whole life, which, you know, I wouldn't like somebody to judge my life, right? Okay, if you, if you think that's baseless and probably kind of harmful practice, and if you don't think there's any grand master plan that's drawing us forward, then I would recommend to you nihilism.
0: I want to push you a bit harder on that in relation to our first theme, which is, does life require a meaning and where do we find it? You seem to be suggesting life does not require a meaning and we are perhaps mistaken in in focusing so much on this search for it. Well, there's a
4: distinction which is crucial to this, right? Do you mean the meaning of individual lives or humanity? Okay. If there's a meaning to humanity, then I, as an individual, have a meaning as part of humanity. Okay. So, So usually philosophers these days distinguish between the meaning of life, which applies to everybody, and their meaning in life, you know, the sort of social meaning applied by different people. As far as do we need a meaning of life, something for humanity, clearly not, because there's no contradiction involved in supposing that nihilism is true. It's not like saying that a circle, you know, triangle has four sides or anything, so it could be true. So, you know, we clearly don't need it. If you're talking about a psychological need for individual people, well, as I say, there's football meaning, festival meaning, restaurant meaning. You know, people pursue goals. That's what we do. So, you know, it, it seems to me that the very premises in which this is usually phrased is to try and make us think that there's one particular special meaning and, and then to try and make us all feel as if we're missing out, you know. You know, just, you know, things have gone downhill. You know, people have been saying that right throughout history. I was listening to a song last night from the nineteen. 19- 30s, um, and there's an older generation, there's a Calypso song, there's an older generation Calypsoian and a, and a younger generation one, and the older one is saying how things used to be much better in the old days, you know, and then the young guy comes on and says, yeah, but now I can buy a record and get on a train, so I like it now, you know, you find stuff in that like that in ancient literature, I mean, I, and it seems to me that the whole meaning discourse has been brought in to make people think they're missing out, maybe a little bit inadequate.
2: I agree with James that many people can find meaning through various projects in their lives, including families and raising children. These are really important sources of meaning. Also in supporting social groups. I mean, after all, in wars, millions of people are willing to give up their lives for the sake of the greater good. And in the case of the Second World War in the Soviet Union, where the official philosophy was atheist, um, uh, and they've been raised in atheism, they were still prepared to give up their lives for the greater meaning of the Soviet Union and, and the project that it represented. Um, so there's no doubt that there are many of these projects that we can have and they give people meaning. I think though that uh, even secular humanists, you see, have a, um, who are atheists usually, have a sense that humanity has a greater meaning. They believe in science, reason, and progress. Um, And the entire world is now in the grip of this project, economic development, scientific and technological progress, education for everybody, and so on. There's a massive project which the entire world is engaged in because of this Enlightenment ideology. Now, you could say that's so hollow and shallow as well. I think for individuals, and indeed for communities, a transcendental sense of meaning, a sense of connection with a greater something greater than humanity even, is, has been traditionally very important and still is for most people. As James said, most people in the world are still religious. Uh, and personally, I think many of them would be a lot worse off if they were not. I, I don't think nihilism is for everybody. I suspect it's a luxury. Um, and um, so I think most people do need a sense of short-term meanings, collective meanings, personal meanings but also the sense that humanity and its role in the world has a greater meaning, even if it's a purely secular world.
0: Do you think that's a psychological need that all human beings have?
2: A psychological need? Yes. Well, some people clearly don't have it very much, otherwise they'd be doing something about it. And, and a lot of people are perfectly happy to live in a secular world, being non-religious with um, philosophies that don't go anywhere beyond the kind of present reality. Just as an empirical fact, some people don't feel that need. Others do, I, uh, including me. Um, and so I think there are obviously personal differences in this.
3: I'd like to bring out the complexity of the question. Um, I think your question is, where do we find meaning? Yeah. And I think there is something misguided about that way of putting it. I think the question of the meaning of life is much more strange and that has to do with the two concepts it involves meaning and life so there is no life in the abstract or in a vacuum life is always a lived life so the question of the meaning of life only makes sense from within a lived life um, in the first person of course in a philosophy debate we can hear the words what is the meaning of life or in an undergraduate philosophy course or even have a five-year-old say what is the meaning of life but the question has not found its full expression in these contexts. That's one thing. The second thing is that the word meaning has a strange meaning. We use the word meaning for in different cases, and in some cases, it's very simple and straightforward. I ask about the meaning of a word, you give me the dictionary definition. I ask about the meaning of a bread knife that I see on my table, and you say it's there to cut bread. Um, or my friend is doing a strange uh, making a strange facial expression and I'm like, what is the meaning of this? And she says, she gives me her intentions. It's like, I wanted to show that I'm annoyed at something. And there are ways to turn the question of the meaning of life into like simple, a simple question. One way I think would be, as uh, James also suggested, to treat of life as biological life. So to say what is the function of life, and then we could straightforwardly say. Um, It is to uh, survive and reproduce. Note here that sometimes I think when people reply to the question of the meaning of life by saying, it is to have children, there may be a conflation between biological life and life as this other thing that I'm talking about. Uh, Or we could turn it into a question about the intention of the creator. And so then the question of the meaning of life is, quite simple to answer because you reply by saying what the intention of the creator was when he created humanity. But I think there's also another way to see the question, which is much more complex and has to do with the first personal, where the word meaning doesn't um, connect with any of these meanings of meaning.
0: (laughs) And in this sense, is meaning something to be constructed rather than discovered? Or is that a false, shaky dichotomy? I mean, it depends on what you mean discovered and it
3: depends on what you mean constructed. And I think that's where we may be disagreeing. Um, I may be disagreeing perhaps with the other speakers. I don't know. Uh, Because I think it's something that is there in the sense that it's connected to the transcendental, as I said, to what it is to live a good life. So you can't just uh, construct it yourself subjectively, completely subjectively. But then it's not something
0: that is given to you in the third person either. I wonder if we can take this into a... second theme, which is about how we should respond um, to these issues we face when we're trying to create or discover meaning. And and the theme is, should we ring out a Nietzschean chair at the death of God and focus our attention on creating our own human meanings? Coming straight back to you, Maria. Yeah, good. Um, So, well,
3: yes and no, uh, in the sense that when Nietzsche so happily declared that God is dead, it was because he thought that the Christian framework, the religious framework, is a framework, as he calls it, of slave morality. Uh, and that, I think, means that, in a way, the question of the meaning of life cannot really arise within the life of a Christian as Nietzsche understood it, because then, then, then the question of the meaning of life just gets reduced to a question about the intention of the creator and then uh, what you have to do is go to the sacred texts or to the representatives of God on earth, like the priests, and they tell you what to do and how you, live, you should live your life. And for Nietzsche, that's an anathema because that means that other things that value like personal freedom and creativity um, and individual responsibility for one's life cannot find, there, cannot find a place there. But I want to complicate the issue of religion a bit because I think there is a way to be religious and to have faith in God that doesn't reduce the question of the meaning of life to a question about the intention of the creator. And I think that's the case when you treat God as a mystery as well. So then you have a kind of doubling of the mystery. You don't have God as a reply to the question of the meaning of life, but you have the mystery of the meaning of life and the mystery of God's existence.
0: Rather than just thinking about religion as a sort of set of rules yeah, to exactly. provide a to exactly. closer meaning. Yeah. Thank you. Over to you, Rupert. Do you think the death of God is something we should be celebrating?
2: Well, not really, no. I, I, I think that the, um, we've had attempts to um, move humanity forwards without God. I mean, the first, perhaps, largest scale attempt was the, so the Bolshevik Revolution, They were trying to build a new humanity based on an atheist worldview. Marxism is atheist. And the Soviet Union was an attempt uh, to, uh, an idealistic attempt to reshape the whole of humanity freed from the fetters of the feudal past, capitalism and so forth. Well, that was a massive experiment on the hugest of scales. Most of us would think it didn't work very well. Nazi Germany was another attempt to to apply um, not exactly directly Nietzschean principles, but Nietzsche's belief in heroism and and humanity building itself, his contempt for altruism, which he saw as part of this slave morality, complete contempt and dismissal of altruism. uh, That experiment was put into practice in Nazi Germany, an attempt to go beyond uh, all the sort of normal limitations, certainly beyond Christianity perhaps with undertones of the old pagan gods. Um, But there was, and I would say that if you look at the billionaire cult in America, um, many billionaires were influenced by Ayn Rand, who herself was influenced by Nietzsche, although she later disavowed him. But it leads to this extreme individualism and the idea of transhumanity and going beyond. I mean, like Elon Musk uh, pioneering the exploration of space. I mean, this is... This is one of these Nietzschean-type attempts, I think. Um, well, personally, I'm not very attracted to any of them. Um, and I think uh, they'd be, the Nietzschean approach has been tried. But actually, if one looks at the, the background to all this, it's in, in Orthodox Christian theology, I mean of the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's a much stronger emphasis in, than in the Western Church on what they call theosis. God became man in the form of Jesus so that humans could become divine. Um, The divinization of humanity. And this was actually um, a very large background part to the Bolshevik thinking in the Soviet Union. They were God makers. They called themselves God makers. They were going to divinize humanity without the need for God, but through humanity itself, divinizing itself. But this background of of theosis um, is not so much a matter of following divine instructions, uh, but a kind of creative process of the divinization of humanity. And that is one of the core meanings of uh, the Christian message. Um, And it's quite explicit in the Eastern churches. Um, And I think that uh, means that it's not so much either uh, humanity rising up in a way that's totally without God and without any external meaning or following divine instructions. I think the, the core, central message is actually in between those two.
0: I mean, you've given us a couple of examples of sort of a disastrous attempts to construct societies without God, but presumably we can think of collective action and collective meaning without presupposing transcendence.
2: Well, the whole of the modern secular state is based on that, isn't it? I mean, the British government the media, the entertainment thing, uh, I mean, if you go to a film, if you watch TV, you never see people going to church or praying, or at least I don't when I watch things. It's always secularized, it's always, you can't do that, you can't have people saying grace in Downton Abbey, even though they would have done at the time, because it might offend humanists or atheists. Um, so there's there's a kind of airbrushing out of, of, from our whole secular life. And In America, politicians have to at least pretend to be Christian. Here in Britain, it's perfectly fine to be an atheist politician, and many of them are. So uh, we've actually got that situation. We have a secular, effectively secular state, where religion plays very little part in public life, except for state ceremonies like coronations and things.
0: But you're saying that there were problems that come with that?
2: Well, I think there are, and I think some of the problems that come with it are the fact that many people feel their lives to be fragmented and meaningless, which is why there's so much depression and so many people taking antidepressants. And why recent psychedelic research has shown that for many people who have recalcitrant and and untreatable depression or addiction, um, psychedelic experiences with psilocybin or other psychedelic substances can have an astonishing curative effect, not because the drug they're taking counteracts some receptor in the brain and stops depression chemically, but because the very experience they have of connection with a greater consciousness or realm of meaningful um, mind uh, beyond their own is itself something that cures the depression and uh, and often helps people to give up addictions. It's
4: perfectly possible that some people would be better off, um, you know, with religious beliefs. But the problem with belief is you can't make yourself believe something. You either do or you don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm entirely opposed to the secular meanings of life. Some other examples I might give is a eugenic project of perfecting the human race with biology, or maybe the, you know, cybernetic idea to enhance us by putting various mods into us. You know, it's a Terrible idea. And that's why I wouldn't ring out a Nietzschean cheer at the death of God, because that, what Nietzsche did was he made the meaning of life seem like a problem for atheists. You know, we have to go and build our own meaning because God won't do it for us. right? What we should have done at that point is just accepted nihilism as a discovery. Okay, We've reached this point. And that's why I think we could do with nihilism today. If, if you have religious beliefs, you don't have a choice in the matter, a meaning of life. You probably don't know exactly what it is, but you think there is one. If you're an atheist, on the other hand, you can choose to be a nihilist and say, no thanks to to these secular projects of building humanity, no thanks to this supposed destiny in which we're gonna merge with computers, you know, no thanks to these various other projects which will cause huge, terrible social fallout and then we'll have to deal with it after the effect. It's a, it's a good time, in my opinion, to reject the meaning of life and be a, a nihilist in that sense.
0: Uh, so just say no to meaning.
4: Say no to meaning, yeah, that's it. Just say no. I
0: would like to come back to the question Rupert posed before, which we didn't have a chance to answer then, uh, which is quite provocative, which is, is nihilism a luxury? Is nihilism a luxury? I think, Rupert, you were suggesting it is.
2: Well, yes, I think that in most societies, Nihilism is a luxury because there's a collective. Like, for example, I lived in India among poor people. I worked in agricultural research there. There, the cohesion of the families, the cohesion of the social group, the observation of the festivals, the binding together of the social life on which everyone depends, because they don't have National Health Service like we do, or social care paid for by one and a half percent surcharge on whatever. They don't have any of that. They depend on the social group to support them and sustain them. And a shared meaning is very, absolutely essential. Now, you can get rid of all that. You can have atheism and nihilism as long as you've got social care systems, you've got the National Health Service, you've got sort of pensions and things that you're not necessarily dependent on other people. You can be an individualist if you're supported by the state.
4: I'd say that nihilism can't possibly be a luxury because if it's true, it's a fact. A fact about reality can't be a luxury. It can't be a luxury to believe the truth. I mean, um, if it's true, of course, it might be false, right? There might be a meaning of life. But if, if it's true, then the argument would be to believe the truth is a luxury. And you know, and le- you know unless you've got wealth, etc., then you have to have a false belief or be delusional. You know, it doesn't make sense. So I don't, I don't think it in principle can be a, a luxury. That wouldn't make sense.
2: Well, can I just say that that rather supposes it's true and to the, the idea that it's no, true is it a not. belief. Nihilism is a belief. Atheism is a belief. It's a belief there's no consciousness out there. Um, so I would say that it's a belief system. I wouldn't say it, you might say it's true because I believe it, but lots of people say that what they believe is true.
4: Well, outside of definitions and mathematics, it's the same situation with everything, right? Maybe we're hallucinating right now. I mean, you, you weigh up the reasons, and if the reasons are strong enough, you say that you know something. Isn't
3: there a logical problem with nihilism in the sense that, like which position do you occupy? If, I don't know, is, is nihilism the proposition, there is no value outside this world that gives value to this world? If, if that's yeah, the proposition...
4: Yeah, there's no wider evaluative context. But which. then
3: my problem would, with that would be, which, which position do you occupy logically when you utter that? Because it seems that it would be the same position that you would have to occupy to say, there is wider value. So it would be, I would still have to kind of stand outside the world, or somewhere to say, there is no um, wider value." That's why for me, it's so important that this question can only be posed from within the lived life and the first person, because there is, logically speaking, no way to occupy a position outside the world where you can say, I'm looking at the world and I don't see any wider value.
4: Wouldn't the the natural endpoint of taking that position being that the question is meaningless? Sounds like a sort of positivist type thing to say, which I don't think it is. I think we all understand it. I think think we can make sense of a question like that within our social framework, within our justificatory practices, using the language we do. I mean, it's the old, uh, what Rorty used to say, step out, you know, you can't step outside your skin. I'm really not persuaded by those arguments. Really. You think we it's can? A, it's ultimately victims. Well we can talk about things that step outside of our experience, yeah. I mean we might not be a, you know not everything, every word is made meaningful by direct experience. Mm. From yeah, yeah. experience, you know, human beings are beings that can conceive possibilities, that can follow through ideas, can imagine.
0: I'd like to move this on to our, our final theme. I think we, we perhaps won't settle that one conclusively. And our final theme is, can we find meaning in the philosophical mysteries of life and the universe? Thoughts, Rupert?
2: Well, philosophy originally started as a, a quest for a way of life in, in, among the Greeks. It was a way of finding a way of living. It was a, a search for wisdom, the love of wisdom. Um, it wasn't dry academic seminar rooms, um, you know, disputing counterfactual conditionals. It was about the way you live. And... It was closer in a way to religion in that sense. So I would say that the, um, if we take by philosophy uh, and if we include within philosophy theology and uh, the larger questions, then th- it can be a help. Um, if we take philosophy to be what's practiced in most university departments in the English-speaking world, then I don't think it's much of a help. Um, it's a, and I don't think that scientific ideas are that much of a help either. I mean, I'm a scientist. I spent my whole career doing science. It's my passion. I spent my days doing it. I've torn myself away from writing a review paper um, to come here sort of thing. I mean, I believe in it. Um, but it's a pretty thin gruel if you're looking for the meaning of life because, at least as it's currently taught... Um, science is still based on a materialist paradigm that basically says there isn't any particular meaning to life. There are just material particles, material systems, forces and fields governed by eternal mathematical laws uh, which have no particular design, purpose or meaning. I think that the sciences don't have to be uh, wedded to the materialist belief system. That's the whole point of my recent book, The Science Delusion. Um, I think that the sciences are actually held back by this dogmatic belief system. And I think they can help to illuminate other things, spiritual practices, for example. In my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I show how scientific investigations of a range of spiritual practices, including connecting with nature, meditation, uh, singing and chanting, uh, pilgrimage, um, show that these have beneficial effects, that they're... They have measurable physiological effects that are, generally speaking, positive for people who do them. So I think that science can actually help in illuminating things, but not by itself gives a sense of meaning or purpose. And nor, I think, can philosophy, unless it's taken in a much broader sense than it usually is today.
0: So we can use sciences and philosophy, but we need to think more broadly about both of them. Absolutely.
2: And I mean, if you look at the average scientific grant proposal, and most scientists spend about thirty percent of their time writing grant proposals. Um, That's they, all. they don't. They don't say we want this grant because we've got to keep graduate students busy and we need the equipment for the new lab and and uh, you know I need to keep publishing papers so I can go on in my career and get a good pension. They don't say that. They usually say humanity suffers from appalling diseases like Alzheimer's and uh, etc. And the, or cancer, and this grant will enable us to study the mechanism of cell division in cells because it would, in due course, help with a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's. They always pretend that they have some larger altruistic aim, which goes beyond science itself. So scientists themselves uh, pitch their appeals for funding. But do you
0: not think they believe that?
2: I don't think they believe it terribly deeply. I mean, some of them believe it. I think most of them realize this is the way you pitch grants and you have to make it look as if it's interesting and useful and now you have to show that it has a positive impact. Uh, You don't say it's just true, these facts we're publishing in scientific journals. They actually have to tick boxes about impact. And that means something to do with the greater good. Since the vast majority of the public are never going to read technical papers in scientific journals, even scientists, you know, even most scientific papers only get zero, one, two, or three citations. I mean, it's not easy if scientists are spending their time reading all these papers. So, scientists do. have to pretend, at least, that there's something more to it than that.
0: Thank you. Um, Maria, what are your thoughts? Can we find meaning in the philosophical mysteries of life and the universe? First of all, philosophers also
3: have to tick these boxes about impact now, which is even worse. <laughs> Um, But continuing with the distinction that Rupert just drew between science and philosophy, I think actually that the question of the meaning of life is a philosophical mystery as opposed to a scientific mystery. And again, I think it's uh, worth drawing the distinction here between kinds of mystery, because we've got mysteries that are in principle solvable, like the mysteries detectives deal with, or uh, the mystery of the universe as a scientific mystery. Maybe it's hard to solve that mystery now, but Um, with um, the progress of science, it's empirically, um, maybe it's empirically difficult, but it's not logically impossible to do so. But then there are certain uh, mysteries that are not solvable, like I think it's the question of the meaning of life. And I think that the fact that that's in the heart of philosophy is made manifest in the fact that philosophy doesn't progress in the way science does. And Wittgenstein actually says something about that, um, which I find important. He says that the question of the, the problem of life um, is solved when it disappears, when it vanishes. And I think what he means by that is that the question of the meaning of life, the only way to answer it is to realize that it's not a question like scientific questions are questions.
0: I'm just thinking about this distinction you made between uh, mysteries that can be solved and mysteries that can't be solved, which are more meaningful. I wouldn't wouldn't want to draw a
3: comparison there. I think they're both meaningful in the context of the practice in which they appear.
0: So it's all about context? Pretty much. Um, and, and back to you, uh, James, just say no to meaning. Um, <laughs> I think we might be able to guess your answer already. Uh, can we find meaning in the philosophical mysteries of life and the universe?
4: Well, I don't think we look to philosophical inquiry to find meaning. I think we look to philosophical inquiry to escape from it. And I don't just mean in the, in the sense that, you know, be an nihilist, say no to meaning. What I mean by that is that uh, everyday, everyday life locks us into goals. You know, we're always thinking about, it's very easy to miss the big picture, to, to not, not step back and reflect on the fact that, you know, you've been born into this life and, you know, into this amazing place and, you know, you've got a route through it, etc. You know, thinking about a question about the meaning of life allows you to address that. And it, and it opens up a world of, of philosophical inquiry. The thing about philosophy is you don't need any specialist equipment to do philosophy, so everybody can. Um, And it's it's an ancient conversation, and it's able to look independently at both science and religion, which are two major forces in our world because it is neither science nor religion. So it's exactly what we need um, in order to try and make sense of things and not just, you know, Put the blinkers on and get on with things and watch the world move in directions we don't particularly like, but that somebody rich does like. Um, you know, we need a kind of philosophical awakening in my, in my opinion. Um, first thing to do would be to plug the major gap in our educational system and make teaching philosophy compulsory from primary school. But uh, I'm not in charge of the world, so I can't do that.
0: This phrase you just used, making sense, I'd like you to sort of distinguish that from meaning in the way we've been talking about it.
4: Well, I think, I think when, I mean, God, in these debates about meaning and the meaning of life, the word gets used in so many ways, right? But some, quite, very often it means a purpose, right? Okay, and then sometimes it means something particularly significant. So people will say, you know, your life feels meaningful when, you've got, when, you've, when you feel enthusiastic about your project, you know? So a lot of people will say, you know, my life feels meaningless when they can't be bothered to do things anymore. And then, you know, sometimes it means something important about your life, but then some philosophers will want to only make the good things important, right? Because we wouldn't want to say that, you know, Adolf Hitler had a particularly meaningful life, right? That would be bad. Then it becomes, then it sort of morphs into a proposed, a sort of broadened conception of ethics. So. You know, so many things can be meant by it, but, you know, in in philosophy, we we make sense of things and we we ask what it means to make sense of things. You know, anything can be a a topic of philosophical inquiry. That's why you have philosophy of art and mathematics and sport and music and, you know, as I said, religion and, and science. You know, there's lots of different ways of me, you know, and, and, and the idea of definitive answers to philosophical questions. Can you imagine it, right? I've got the book of philosophical answers. Oh yeah, what's the answer to the problem of determinism? Let's look up this page. Oh right, okay, well, you know, well, uh, there is no freedom, it's all an illusion. Oh great, okay, let me find out the meaning of life. Oh oh, God, Tartaglia was right, nihilism's true, yeah? But, uh, that doesn't make sense, that's not how philosophy works. right? It's an ancient conversation. As the conversation moves on, right, it moves to what's relevant to people at that time. When it gets locked away in exactly the way Rupert was describing, it becomes a kind of sort of dead process, a sort of competition sport where nobody's watching apart from the people who want to be the, the competitors. right? It needs to open out to the people. Philosophy is, is, is the missing part of, of, of our education, in my opinion.
0: Would our other panellists agree with that?
3: About philosophy being? Yeah, the you missing know, part. Yes, um, and I think your suggestion, James, earlier about introducing that in... I mean, maybe that's not relevant, the meaning of life, or maybe it is, I don't know, but introducing it in, like, schools, that's, that's so important. Yeah,
4: The sort of question kids, kids love to ask, oh, yeah. and, and they don't get a chance. They're just taught things, taught facts that they forget, you know, where there's no chance for them to have an opinion, to disagree. To end the class, it's like, well, they think that it's, you know wrong to kill pe- five people to save two, you know, by pulling the trolley or whatever, you know, but they don't, you know, and it doesn't resolve. But people, you know, kids learn a sense that that's how life is, really. There are disagreements, and you have to try and be more reasonable and try and find ways to persuade people. this think our education system lacks that. You know, philosophy has become more and more minor, and it's a product of um, what Rupert was talking about earlier, the sort of dominance of materialism in the 20th century, which I think is now starting to wane. It, it kind of blurred the boundaries between philosophy and science and people weren't really sure what was what anymore.
0: I just want to bring this, this idea of making sense to you, Rupert. Do you think that's a useful way to...
2: Well, making sense is seeing how things are connected together, isn't it? Instead of being just isolated facts or factoids. And so seeing how things are connected together is obviously very important for us. That's why humans uh, have myths. So it's why uh, people have had stories to make sense of their lives. And indeed, it's why we have a whole entertainment industry that's showing endless reality TV shows and soap operas and that kind of thing that are all about making sense of social life and how to live in the world today. They they help a lot of people in making sense. Um, So I think that's important, but it's a question of how wide you want the connections to go. I mean, everyone here is in favour of philosophy. I mean, James has put up a very good case for it, but... Personally, I think that making sense uh, makes most sense when the meaning is widest. And I personally think that the universe uh, is not unconscious. I think there's a consciousness throughout the universe and that uh, when we have mystical or uh, visionary experiences, we're actually um, coming into contact with greater forms of consciousness than ourselves. Some would say that's a mere illusion inside our brains, nothing but electrical and chemical events inside the brain, and it's not out there at all. When you experience it, it does seem to be out there, and I think actually it is. The only reason for dismissing it is a theory that the mind's nothing but the activity of the brain. I think we're better off with our own experience. And when we have these broader contexts, which see consciousness as not just limited to skulls in a few mammalian species, um, or even in worms or lower animals, uh, but rather something much wider as a part of the constitution of nature and of reality, then we have a much greater sense of meaning and connection. But these are all arguable positions, and the only way we're going to find those connections is through thinking about them, reading about them, and through philosophical discussions, in which I include theology, because that's a kind of philosophy, except that it's one that admits the possibility of consciousness beyond the human level, whereas a lot of philosophy rules that out uh, from the beginning. So that again is a philosophical discussion.
0: I think if my job was to uh, encourage disagreement between the three of you, I have failed. I've just conclusively found that you all agree that philosophy is the answer.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.